Well, good morning. How is everybody? I don't believe you. How you doing? Everybody okay? All right. Praise God. Good to see you. Good. Glad you are here. Um, that's a little preview from our choir of Christmas music. That didn't sound like Christmas music, did it? But it's Christmas music. They're, our theme this year is, is he worthy? And the answer, of course, is yes, he is. Um, and his son got his talent from his mother. So um, we praise God for that. Hey, take out your copy of God's Word. Join me in the very first book of the Bible this morning, the book of Genesis this morning, Genesis chapter one. Um, I'm dressed down a little bit today. Uh, it's not unusual for me to wear jeans. It's highly unusual for me to preach in a t-shirt. The reason I'm doing so is because today is the day we are invading downtown. Uh, immediately after church, we're inviting anybody who wants to to go eat lunch downtown with us. We're going over to Sparkman's Wharf. Uh, you can either walk down there or drive down there. If you don't like walking, I'd encourage you to drive. Um, it's a little bit of a walk, but we're just going to go down there. No agenda, really, other than just being downtown and letting people know that we are here. Um, it is my heart for our church to have an influence outside of the walls of this building, and downtown is teeming with people who need to know Jesus Christ, who need to encounter genuine Christ followers and know what it looks like to to follow Jesus Christ, to know what that is. And so we just want to go down together. Uh, if you have a t-shirt, wear it. If you don't, as you leave today, there are some that are going to be available. Now, there's probably not enough for everybody, but if you want to grab a t-shirt and then come downtown with us, come downtown. Let's just eat lunch together and just let God open up conversations with people. And so uh, that is the goal for today, thus why we are dressed the way we are. We've been discussing worldviews on Sunday morning. In particular, we have been establishing and strengthening confidence in a biblical worldview. Our worldviews are just how we view the world. Everyone has one. They may not acknowledge it, they may not know what it is, but we all have them. Even as Christ followers, we ought to have a biblical worldview, but the vast majority of believers don't know what a biblical worldview is, little less live by it. And so we have been defining and illustrating worldviews, and in particular, the biblical worldview. We've turned our focus to God on how we can know who He is, not because of how we can think about Him, but because of how He has revealed Himself to us. We don't start with human wisdom and try to figure an infinite God out. We allow an infinite God to reveal Himself to us, and He has revealed Himself to us. He has done so in creation in a general sense, and He has done so in His Word in a very specific sense. So He has revealed Himself in the world, and He has revealed Himself in the world. As we look at the world, we see that He is an imminent God. He is huge. He is above His creation. As we look at Him in His Word, we find that that imminent God is a very personal, imminent God. He is a close God. And since we are basing our worldview on the Word of God, the Bible, we spent a couple of weeks discussing why we can have confidence in the Bible, why we can have confidence that the Bible is authoritative, that it's historical, that it is accurate, that it is true. We spent time talking about the authority of the Word, and then last week we considered the sufficiency of the Word, that it is all that we need for life and godliness. It is not the Bible plus anything else. It is the Bible that is revealing to us all that we need for a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so today I want to draw our attention to another topic. I want to draw our attention to what the Bible teaches us about how the world began. 
I want to talk about creation for a few minutes this morning. And what does the authoritative and sufficient Word of God teach us about the origin and meaning of life? Where does life come from? What meaning does life have? And we're going to read a large section of Genesis chapter 1 and into chapter 2 this morning. And so I've asked some of our young adults if they would come and help us to read this. So guys, if you guys would come on up. Um, These are some of our young adults. And if you are in this age group, college and young adults in your mid, in your 20s, this is an awesome group of students and, and young adults who meet on Sundays after church. They meet on Tuesday nights. And these folks are just some folks that are striving to walk with Christ in integrity. And I love these guys. They challenge me personally in my walk. And so um, I've asked them to come and, and read the scriptures with us this morning. And what they're going to read for us is Genesis chapter 1, the account of creation. The Bible begins in a very high and a lofty place because it's talking about our Creator God. And so, as we read this together, as they read for us, would you guys stand with us as we read from God's Word, if you're physically able, Genesis chapter 1, no matter what Bible you're using today, it's on page 1, okay? If you you didn't bring one, there's some in the pew back there in front of you. I didn't even have to look that one up today. I knew that one. Page 1. So, as our our young adults uh, read for us, let's uh, worship God through the reading of His Word this morning. Day one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning, one day. Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separate the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning, a second day. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. 
Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves within which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind. And God said, and God saw that it was good. He blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. Then there was evening, and then was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Thank you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can trust it, that it is true, that it is authoritative, it is sufficient. Thank you for being an eyewitness to creation to show us how you made the world. Lord, we love you. Thank you. Open our hearts and our mind to your truth today. Let us stand firmly in it, and let us proclaim the truth with love when we go out from this place. Lord, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, how about giving our uh, young adults a hand for helping me out this morning? Great job. Thank you, guys. So you don't actually believe that Genesis chapter 1 is supposed to be taken literally, do you, Pastor? Isn't the Bible supposed to be read um, poetically, especially in chapter 1 of Genesis? It's just all figurative language, right? Pastor, you don't actually believe the story in the Bible is literal. My friends, that's the million-dollar question. Do we believe what the Bible teaches or don't we? Do we accept it as true and as sufficient or are we seeking something that we think is better, more sophisticated, perhaps more scientific? Is the Bible true or is it not? So let me make this extremely clear, as clear 
as I possibly can, do I believe that chapter one of the book of Genesis should be interpreted literally? My answer is absolutely yes. 100%. I believe that a transcendent God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. I believe he created it out of nothing. I, cre- I believe he created it with his voice, and I believe he created it in a literal six-day period of time. If that makes me sound like an idiot, then I'll gladly wear that title. God has done these things. I believe it is to be taken literally because any proper practice of scriptural interpretation and in hermeneutics of the Bible can lead to no other conclusion. If you practice proper biblical interpretation, if you practice proper biblical hermeneutics, you cannot take chapter one of the Bible figuratively. To do so does great damage to the text, and it does great damage to the rest of the Bible in total. The book of Genesis, particularly chapter one and two, are to be taken literally. They're to be taken at face value. And so, if that is true, then what does Genesis chapter 1, which we've just read together, teach us about the origins of life and about the meaning of life? Because everybody wants to know, where did life come from? Everybody wants to know, what's the meaning of life? When you talk about worldviews, they all strive to answer that question. Where did man come from? Where did life come from? And what meaning does life have? And if we are going to have a biblical worldview, then where should we turn to understand those answers, those questions? Obviously, we should turn to the Word. And what does the Word teach us? The Word teaches us this in the first four words of the Bible. In the beginning, God. Now, I could pause right here, and I could preach an entire message on those four words. We could begin to talk about a biblical worldview from those four words. I'm not going to do that today because there's so much here I want us to talk about. But in the beginning, God. Time had a beginning. Time has not always been. The universe is not eternal. It has not always been. The first two laws of thermodynamics help us to understand that. The first two laws of thermodynamics teach us that there is a limited amount of energy within the universe, and it is fading away. In other words, the universe is not winding up. The universe is winding down. Therefore, it's going to have an end. Everybody tells you the universe is going to have an end. We can't turn on the news without finding out that in 10 years, Miami's going to be underwater. We can't turn on the news and find out that the world's not coming to an end. Everybody agrees the world's coming to an end. If the world is coming to an end, then it must have had a beginning. Every effect has a cause. Every cause has a cause. If you look back over history, something caused this event to happen, which caused this to happen, which caused this to happen, and you trace that all the way back to the beginning, and ultimately you're going to come to a cause that has no cause. Does this make sense? Everything that has happened has a cause. And we trace those causes back till we get to a point where we're forced to ask a question. Who or what caused 
the first cause? Who or what set all of this into motion? Where did it come from? Where did it start? Like Paul did on Mars Hill in Athens, let me introduce you to the one that you worship in ignorance. His name is God. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the uncaused cause. He is the great I Am, the self-existent God who has always been, who is transcendent beyond our creation, who in the beginning was. In the beginning was God. There are only two options to the existence of life and the universe. Either the universe has caused itself to be in existence, or something, or more specifically, someone outside of the universe caused it to come into existence. Those are the only two options. Either the universe is eternal and somehow caused itself to come into existence, or something outside of life, outside of the universe, caused it to come into existence. Human theories that are being passed off as facts today state that the universe is eternal and somehow started with some primordial, what they might call ooze or goo. But the theory cannot tell us where that primordial goo came from. I'm just going to let that sink there for a second. Scientific theory can say we believe that life started from this stuff, but they have no answer to where that stuff came from. I do. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. God is the great cause of all things. He is the author and originator of creation. It is in ignoring this truth that we find the basic error of human schemes. It's in, it's in ignoring the truth that there is a supernatural creator where false systems of philosophy and religion begin to attempt to reason upward rather than accepting the revelation that God has given to us. These systems start with our own human understanding, our own fallen, finite minds, and they try to figure out that which is unfigureoutable. They try to reason up to God, but every time human reason tries to reason up to God, it will fall short. In the beginning, God created. He created, and His creation declares His glory. His perfect, pristine creation all points to Him. His creation was worthy of Him, and it reflects His character. Human theories being taught as fact today claim that life climbed out of goo. But where did the goo come from? In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created everything. Everything that we see, God created. As we were listening to the word being read today, we heard that God created light. God created day. God created night. He created the sun. He created the moon. He created the stars. He created the planets. He created the air. He created the oxygen. 
He created trees and plants and seas and dry land. He created the plankton within the seas. He created the small fish. He created the big fish. He created the birds. He created the bison. He created the duck-billed platypus. He created it all. He created mankind. Out of his vivid, endless imagination, God created everything. Kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. He created it all. The human theories being taught as fact today teach us that this primordial goo exploded in a violent explosion, sometimes referred to as the Big Bang. And out of that chaos came intelligent life. Out of that explosion, through random chance and an unprovable evolutionary process, over a million years, everything that we know came into existence. That from chaos, order came. From an explosion, intelligent life, an intricate life took place. As one author so eloquently put it, as I was reading this week, he said, they would have us to believe that you came out of the goo but first passed through the zoo. They would have us to believe that you, the intricate, incredible being that you are, came out of random chance from a bunch of goo, but in order to get to where you are, you first became a something that became a something else, that became a something else, that became a something else. And God created all of it. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created everything. And in the beginning, God created everything out of nothing. In the beginning, God created everything out of nothing. God did not make the universe. God created the universe. And there is a massive distinction between creating something and making something. When you make something, you take things that already exist and you put them together in some kind of intelligent way and you make something. Human beings can make amazing things. I stand in awe of some of the things that human beings can make, but a human being cannot create a single thing. Because creation isn't making, creation is starting with nothing and fashioning things into intelligent design. The fancy term for that is ex nihilo, out of nothing. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created everything, and He did it out of nothing. Science has no explanation for this. In the beginning, God created He created everything out of nothing. He created everything out of nothing with His voice. He spoke it into existence. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3 says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God, so that that which is seen was not made out of things which are visible. When God created all of the universe, the vast expanses of the universe, when He created the sun, which by the way is just a tiny star when compared to the other stars in our galaxies, when He created that, it was not hard work for Him. 
He didn't have to put his back into it. He didn't have to lean into it. He didn't break a sweat. He just spoke it, and it came into existence. Look through this passage in chapter 1. In verse 3, notice what it says. Then God said. Verse 6, then God said. Verse 9, then God said. Verse 14, then God said. Verse 20, then God said. Verse 24, then God said. Verse 26, then God said. Each day as he created, he just spoke it into existence. Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9. You may want to jot that passage down if you're a note taker. Psalm 33, 6 through 9 says this, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He gathered the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created everything. In the beginning, God created everything out of nothing. In the beginning, God created everything out of nothing with his voice. And in the beginning, God created everything out of nothing with his voice in six days. Modern science declares emphatically and sometimes rather persuasively that the universe, that the earth and universe took millions, if not billions, of years to form. But the passage we've just read in Genesis chapter 1 tells us that it happened in six days. Both cannot be true. Either it took billions of years to form or it happened in six days. Which one should we believe? If the Lord wanted to teach us that creation took place in six literal days, he could not have stated it more clearly than he does in Genesis chapter 1. He wants us to understand that this was six literal days. I could, we could spend a week unpacking this. I'm just going to give you a couple reasons why you can have confidence that it was six literal days. First of all, the days are numbered. In the Old Testament, there are different words for days. Sometimes they talk about periods of time, and sometimes they talk about a 24-hour day. Every time they are numbered in the Old Testament, it's referring to a 24-hour period of time. Each one of these days, day one, day two, day three, all the way through day seven, they are numbered. They are set apart. They are marked by the rising and the setting of the Son, just as we mark out days today, you, we live in the state of Florida. We can go over to Daytona Beach, and at 6 o'clock in the morning, we can watch the sun come up, and we can drive over to Pasadena Beach in the afternoon and watch the sun go down. We mark days by the rising and the setting of the sun. Each one of these days in Genesis chapter 1 is marked by a rising and a setting of the sun. The week itself marks out the pattern for human labor and rest. It marks out a pattern for us. In fact, the fourth commandment that God gives to us makes no sense whatsoever apart from a literal understanding of Genesis chapter 1. Anybody remember what the fourth commandment is? Wow. Okay. Next series, Ten Commandments. I know what to do next. All right. Good. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Set apart this 
day. That makes no sense apart from the day of the, that God had set aside within this week, this pattern of work for six days, set aside a day for rest. There's more I could go through there. I just want to give you an idea of why you can be so confident that this is literal. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created everything. In the beginning, God created everything out of nothing. In the beginning, God created everything out of nothing with His voice. In the beginning, God created everything out of nothing with His voice in six days. And in the beginning, God created everything out of nothing with His voice in six days, and it was good. Meaning it was perfect, just the way He designed it to be. Look at these verses with me. Verse 4, the end of verse 4, God saw the light was good. Sorry, that's the first part of verse 4. Verse 10, God saw that it was good. Verse 12, God saw that it was good. Verse 18, God saw that it was good. Verse 21, God saw that it was good. Verse 25, God saw that it was good. Verse 31, God saw all that He had made, and behold, it was very good. What God created, He created without flaw. He created a perfect universe. He created a perfect earth. He created man and woman, and they were in their perfection in His image. What He created was perfect. You say, well, what happened? Because it's not perfect now. Come back in two weeks. We'll talk about what happened. When we begin to understand from a biblical worldview where evil comes from, where sin comes from, where darkness in our world comes from, We find that answer also in the Word of God. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created everything. In the beginning, God created everything out of nothing. He created it with His voice. He created it in six days. It was good, and it was for His glory. Everything God created was to magnify Him. From the tiniest of ants to the largest of solar systems, it's all for His glory. Psalm 19, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Colossians, all that has been made has been made by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7, everyone who is called by by name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made, you were made for God's glory. Everything that God has made is good, and everything that God has made is for His glory. In the beginning, y'all are going to get tired of hearing this, aren't you? might stick, though. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created, help me out, everything. In the beginning, God created everything out of nothing. In the beginning, God created everything out of nothing with His voice. In the beginning, God created everything out of nothing with His voice in six days, and it was good, and it was for His glory. In 1859, Charles Darwin published his book entitled The Origin of Species, which is considered to be the foundation of evolutionary biology. And in his book, Darwin theorized that Populations evolved over the course of generations through a process called natural selection. Uh, Survival of the fittest is a term that came out of that. 
Strong things survive, weak things die, strong things evolve and become something else. Naturalism is the worldview that supports this understanding of natural selection. And naturalism is a worldview that holds that every law and force operating in the universe is natural rather than spiritual or supernatural. A naturalist believes that everything can be explained by natural laws and that all that is in the universe is material. There is no supernatural, there is no spiritual in the universe. Therefore, man is just a chance product of a biological process that is no different than a plant or an animal. If there is nothing supernatural, if everything is just a part of some kind of random chance in a biological process, and it's just the strongest survive, then man might be the strongest around, but they're no different than a plant, they're no different than an animal. There are a couple common misconceptions about natural selection, about naturalism. The first common misconception is that naturalism has nothing to do with religion. And intuitive, you would, you would think, well, it doesn't. It just said that by definition, naturalism said there is nothing supernatural, there is nothing spiritual. And in fact, to be a naturalist, by definition, you have to be opposed to any form of God, whether that's an impersonal or a personal God. But while a naturalist rejects the concept of God, it is still a faith-based premise. Naturalism, like every worldview, is faith-based. There are presuppositions that go into a worldview that require faith. I don't care what your worldview is. And naturalism's presupposition is that there is nothing spiritual, that everything is material. Therefore, evolutionary theory is religious. It requires a whole lot of faith to believe in evolutionary theory. Not faith in God, but faith in something. Does that make sense to anybody? The other misconception about this is that it embodies scientific objectivity. Those who hold to naturalism worldview arrogantly at times proclaim that their theory is superior to faith-based worldviews because it is scientific and not religious in nature. Right? So they say, look, you believe in the, in the fairy god, you believe in whatever you want to believe, I'm going to believe in science. You've probably even heard that articulated in that fashion. The notion that Evelary theory can count excuse me, can account for the origin of all things living has never been and will never be established. This concept that evolutionary theory can tell us where life came from has not been established, nor will it ever be established. Why not? Because it has no explanation for where matter and life came from. It cannot. Scientific method requires something to be observable, measurable, and repeatable. Scientific method, by its own definition, says, science says, I can observe it, I can measure it, I can repeat it. Creation is none of those three things. Creation is not observable, creation is not measurable, 
and creation is certainly not repeatable. Where the goo came from is not observable. We can't go back and find out. It's not measurable. We can't do experiments to see if we can do it. And we cannot repeat it. By definition, then, science can provide no actual facts as to the origin of the universe, but can only provide theories. And belief in naturalistic evolution is no more scientific than any other religion or theory out there. And yet, it has been accepted as the standard of truth in Western society. As a matter of fact, naturalism has replaced Christianity as the main religion in the Western world. Though never proven to be fact, the theory of natural evolutionary process accounting for the origin of all living species is now taught as fact in our schools, in our universities, and it dominates scholarly thinking. And to stand opposed to it is to be labeled a religious fanatic or an ignorant fool. Proponents of this worldview are zealous in their defense of it, oftentimes more zealous than we are as Christ followers about a biblical worldview. They are almost to the point, they're not almost to the point, they're beyond the point of being Uh, missionaries to proclaim their theory as truth. As Christians, we love to have the little fish sign, the little fish symbol. You know what I'm talking about? You know why we have that? It's it's an acronym. Um, Ichthus is the Greek word for fish, Jesus Christ, Son of God. Uh, And we have these little symbols on our cars, right? Little fish. They've taken it, and they think they're really clever. They added little legs to it and the word Darwin on it, and they put that on the back of their cars, and they think, hey, we have truth. I'm not trying to make fun of anybody. I'm really not. But creation is not a scientific issue. Creation is a theological issue. Darwin confiscated the subject out of the realm of theology, and he tried to place it into scientific study. He tried to place it into human wisdom. But science does not have answers to the origin of life. And save for a handful of theories, they really have no explanation at all. You've heard of the Big Bang, not the situation comedy, but this idea that the universe started with an immense explosion millions of years ago. But the Big Bang creates more questions for me than it does answers. It causes me to ask more questions than it provides answers for me. Number one, what exploded? If something exploded, there had to be something there. What exploded? Which also leads to this question. What caused it to explode? What caused the stuff that exploded to actually explode? What caused the stuff that exploded to actually exist? Where did that come from? This causes me to ask questions. And here's the big question. How did an ever-expanding and chaotic explosion turn into synergy, order, and an intricate design? In short, how did nobody multiply nothing into everything? Imagine it this way. You heard the name Johann Gutenberg? 
printing press, first printing press. Imagine an explosion happened in Johann Gutenberg's first print shop. All right? So an explosion happens, and all the movable type letters are just blasted into the air. But miraculously, somehow those movable type letters all come together in a perfect formation and come together in a bound leather signed edition of Toy Stories, Tolstoy's War and Peace. All 1,225 pages of it. That's what the Big Bearing Theory is telling us. But take it a step further. Imagine all that happened, but don't start with the movable type letters or the printing press because it wasn't there either. If you believe that, you are placing a lot of faith in something. Scientific evolutionary processes has not nor will ever be able to prove where life came from. So then where should we turn to discover the origins of life? Where should we go? Where should I begin with my worldview? If, if science and human wisdom isn't it, then where should we go to find the greatest answers of life? Where do I go to find out the, the, the origin of life and, and the meaning of life? I return to my earlier statement. Creation is not a scientific issue. Creation is a theological issue. And if we desire to understand creation and the origin of life, then we must look at theology. And where do we learn about God, the study of God, theology? Where do we go to learn about God? We go to His revelation. We go to His Word. And God has revealed Himself to us, and we've already discussed this. His Scripture is authoritative, and His Scripture is sufficient. And you guys were with me. You were shouting amen a couple weeks ago when we say the Word of God is true. You can trust it. And you were shouting amen last week when I said it was sufficient. So I'm wondering this morning if when I tell you that the authority of God's Word is true and sufficient in Genesis chapter 1, if you're still willing to say amen. amen. Through the Bible, we have the only eyewitness account of creation. There was only one person there. And he's told us how it came to be. And when the Bible speaks about the origins of life, it does so clearly, it does so succinctly, and it does it simply. In the beginning, God created. Simple, clear, unambiguous. And before man tried to remove God out of the equation, it made a whole lot of sense. The source of life is God. He gives us life. He gives life meaning. A matter of fact, apart from Him, there is no life, and that life has no meaning. And as we read the first two chapters of Genesis, in fact, as we just read the first verse of the Bible, we are forced to make a decision. Every one of us is forced into a corner where we have to decide, do I accept this as true or not? Did God create everything or not? And what we decide on that issue reveals our opinion on the Bible. Is it authoritative? Is it sufficient? 
or not? Do I trust the creation account or don't I? Either I believe it or I don't. Either I accept it or I reject it. But ask, let me ask this question. If you reject Genesis chapter 1, what else do you reject in the Bible? If you start in chapter 1 and you can't get past the first verse, why are you keeping on reading? Some will say, of course, well, I, I do accept the Bible, but what about science? Look, I'm not here to debate science. I'm not here to say that science doesn't have a lot to offer. I'm not here to say that science can't teach us a lot about how life moves forward and, and teaches us about all kinds of things. Science is very important. God has given us a brain. He's given us the ability to figure out things. All I'm telling you is science has no answer to the origin of life. You don't have to do away with science in order to be a believer. I'm just telling you that in order to be a biblical Christ follower, the lens through which you look at life isn't science and how the Bible fits into it. It's the Bible and how science fits into it. Y'all didn't listen fast enough today. I do want to just share this with you as we close, though. I feel like I've been running a, like a marathon today. Some ramifications of rejecting biblical truth. Some ramifications of rejecting the biblical account of the origin of life in Genesis chapter 1 as literal. Let me, just three ramifications. If we reject chapter 1 as literal, there are major ramifications in our lives. The first one is this. It denies the authority of the Bible. To reject it as literal denies its authority. Either we believe it and trust it or we don't. And sometimes I think well-intending believers try to find a compromise. We try to find a compromise between what science is teaching and what the Bible says. And many times, in order to make that compromise, you have to take the language of Genesis and turn it from literal into figurative. In order to make six days and a billion years work together, you've got to make the language of the Bible figurative. Let me, let me caution you as sternly as I possibly can. Be very, very careful in taking the language of the Bible and turning it into figurative language when it has no intent of being figurative. Unless the Bible tells you this is figurative language, the rule of thumb is take it literally. And any honest interpretation of Genesis chapter 1, any good hermeneutic of Genesis chapter 1 cannot take it any way but literally. And you do great damage to the Bible when you change it. For instance, the New Testament refers to Genesis chapter 1 frequently. And every instance in the New Testament where it refers to Genesis chapter 1, it does so in a literal sense. Not a single time does it do so figuratively. The New Testament is how we understand the Old Testament. It is the commentary on the Old Testament. And not a single time does the New Testament say, oh, by the way, Genesis chapter 1, just figurative language. Jesus Christ himself refers to Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, and he does so in a literal sense, 
never in a figurative sense. And if I'm going to take it figuratively in Genesis chapter 1, then I've got to take it figuratively all the way through. If you don't believe chapter 1, where do you start believing? You start believing at, um, at the boat that Noah built? Oh, wait a minute. No, all those, all those animals couldn't fit on that boat. I can't believe there. Um, we take it at, at, at the Red Sea. Well, no, it wasn't really a big Red Sea. It was just a pool of water that they walked through. No, I can't believe it there. At what point do we start believing the Bible? And when we don't believe it in Genesis chapter 1, we deny the authority of Scripture. And when we try to make Genesis chapter 1 figuratively, you're going to find that you have to make Genesis chapter 2 figuratively and Genesis chapter 3 figuratively, meaning Adam and Eve weren't real people. Adam and Eve didn't really sin. And then you get to the New Testament, and the New Testament says, just as through one man sin came into the world, through one man salvation came into the world in Jesus Christ. And if sin didn't come through one man literally in the Old Testament, then it didn't come through one man, salvation didn't come through one man literally in the New Testament, and we're all still lost in our sin, and we are hopeless. It denies the authority of, uh, of the Scripture. Secondly, it dethrones God from His rightful place. It dethrones God from His rightful place. The whole point of humanistic evolution is not to explain the origin and meaning of life. The whole point of humanistic evolution is an attempt to do away with the Creator, specifically and particularly the God of the Bible. Because if we take our understanding of science all the way back to the beginning, logically we get to the beginning, we go, we don't know what caused everything to happen. And so you then must say there must be an uncaused cause. There must be something outside of nature that caused it. And if the Bible is true, and it is God who is a holy and just and righteous God, and that God has given us uh, laws that we are supposed to follow. He has authority in our lives. And you know what? I don't want a God who has authority in my life. I don't want a God who tells me what to do. So the easiest thing to do is to do what? Let's just get rid of God. Because if I eliminate God, then I'm only answerable to myself. And if I'm only answerable to myself, then I can do whatever I want. Why do you think the world is so hell-bent on defending a theory that has so many holes, cannot be defended, and, ends, and offers no answers to the origins of life? Because the world does not want God on His throne. I'm done with this one. It denies the authority of Scripture. It dethrones God from His rightful place. And it denigrates humanity and life. It denigrates humanity and life. If all we did was climb out of goo after going through the zoo, then humanity is no different than a plant or an animal. If there is no divine creator who made us in his image and set us up over his creation, then human life truly is meaningless. And we can treat anybody the way we want to treat them. In fact, we're supposed to treat them any way we want to treat them because, after all, it's a survival of the fittest. And if you're not strong enough to keep up, then you're in my way. You're inconvenient. And I have every right to just do away with you if I want to. 
when we take away what Scripture teaches us about how God created life and created human beings in His image, we take away and we denigrate humanity and life because life then becomes disposable. Are you starting to put some pictures together? Are you starting to put some pieces together with what you see on the news and when you look at things and go, how can people treat people that way? How can they just dispose of unwanted babies that way? It's because they have a biblical or they have a non-biblical worldview that says there is no God, I can do whatever I want. We're coming back next week. I gave Darren a couple months ago the outline for this message series because Darren does an awesome job. He looks at what we're going to be preaching and then he matches the worship services to it. And I think I've done what I told him I was going to do twice so far, and it just changes from week to week just as God's kind of leading us through this series. So next week I was going to talk about creation corrupted, how what, but I, I just feel led to go back to um, the verse that says, and God created us in, him, in his image. He created man and he created woman. And then looking at chapter two and seeing how that creation took place, because I think we need to talk a little bit about what it means to be a human being in the image of God and these gender issues that are going on in our world, man and woman. So, Darren, I'm changing. I'm throwing a curveball again. So, um, that'll be, so, if you're interested in any of that, next week. Um, and then we'll talk about creation corrupted. But let's finish up this morning. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created everything. In the beginning, God created everything out of nothing. In the beginning, God created everything out of nothing with His voice, and it was, oh, wait, wait, in six days. I almost forgot one. Wow. In six days, and it was good, and it was for His glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we admit that sometimes these topics are just beyond our comprehension, that when we look at the world and people are genuinely trying to figure things out, where did life come from? Father, we're not here to denigrate anyone's ideas. We're, we're here to celebrate truth. We're here to seek truth. And so, Father, help us to have confidence that we can stand on Your Word as authoritative, as true, and as sufficient, that we don't have to back down from a conversation because we don't think that we're smart enough to have it. We don't have to back down because we don't think we have enough evidence to support it. Father, You're not telling us to do away with science. You're just telling us how science and faith in You fit together. And so, Father, I pray today that as we leave this place, that we would do so um, confident in our walk with you because, Lord, you've loved us and you created us in your image. You created us for your glory. And so, Father, we praise you first and foremost for being you and for creating us and for providing the way to make it possible for, have, to, for us to have a relationship with you. And Father, we know through your word that the only way for that to be possible is through your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for loving us and calling you, us into a relationship with you. Father, this morning, I pray that, that as we go out of this place, we would do so maybe with a little more confidence that we can stand up and defend a position that we might hold. And Father, maybe this has caused some to just spur others to just 
dig into this a little bit more and say, let, let me examine this. What the, what the pastor has said, is it, is it really true? Father, I pray that those that are being led that way, that you would encourage them and let them seek after you and seek after your truth. Father, as we leave this place today, we're going to encounter people who do not look at the world through a biblical worldview. They have looked at it from many different worldviews, some a very naturalistic worldview that says everything is just material. We're not leading anywhere. Life is going to end. What a hopeless way to live life. Father, help us. Help us to declare the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Let them see it in our lives. Let them hear it in our conversations. Father, let us rest in the hope that we have in you.